0: And sensitivity across the day is highest in the morning is lower in the evening It follows the circadian uh, pattern and so if feeding can influence these circadian rhythms then when we eat and how we distribute our calories across the day could theoretically uh, uh, cause us to be in either circadian alignment or circadian misalignment
1: Hello and welcome to Wise Nutrition Podcast, the podcast that brings you conversations about nutritional health, mindset and training topics. I'm your host, a certified nutrition coach, Daniel Weiss. Thank you for tuning in. Today I speak with Danny Lennon. You might know him from Sigma Nutrition Radio, which is a podcast about science-based nutrition for health and performance. And I have been a long-time listener of Danny's podcast myself, so it's very nice to speak with him. On my podcast it's always nice thing to have these kind of heroes appear and meet in person, or (laughs) at least online. A little bit about Danito. He became well known for his role as a performance nutritionist to professional and mixed martial artists and boxers. He oversees the Sigma Nutrition online coaching services, where they serve a wide variety of clients. And as I already mentioned, he also has a Sigma Nutrition Radio podcast. In today's podcast, we speak about energy metabolism specifically for mixed sports such as soccer, martial arts and OCR. The next big block is about one of our favorite topics, which is chrononutrition. And you will learn about when you eat might actually influence and how it influences your metabolic health and your health overall. We also answer a question from audience which was how to coach people who prefer a specific dietary patterns such as keto, high carb, vegan, whatever. Despite it might not be optimal for them from the coach's perspective, so how to coach these people. If you like the podcast and you haven't done so already, please consider leaving a rating and review online and similarly if you could share news about this podcast I will be really glad and thankful. I mean it would be great and thank you for all of you who continue to do that. Okay Danny so thank you for accepting my invitation and to find time for this interview and Some of the topics that we will cover today is like concurrent training and energy systems required for combat sports and OCR. And Yeah, and you are like a legend, at least from my perspective, because I've been listening to your podcast for a very long time. And actually, how long have you been running your podcast?
0: Yeah, so my podcast started in early 2014. So, a bit about five and a half years at this point. Um wow. So yeah, it's uh, yeah time time has flown by.
1: Yeah, has it been always so consistent? Like uh, now we are pushing out like one episode a week. If I'm correct.
0: Yeah, it's pretty much been a uh, one one a week. Um, now and again, maybe a, a second one, but pretty much uh, on average, it's, it's one per week.
1: Yeah, so th- that's amazing. So uh, for some. My audience might not be familiar with you. Can you introduce yourself a little bit?
0: Sure. So I run a company called Sigma Nutrition, which the main goal is to put out evidence-based information around nutrition and health sciences, and also that that relates to performance as well. So one of the main ways is, as you mentioned, through the podcast Sigma Nutrition Radio. uh, But we also do online coaching. We have Uh, yearly conferences, and I also speak at uh, quite a lot of seminars and other conferences around the world, which I'm pretty lucky to do. And so it's about taking information that we see from research and trying to translate that into a useful way for practice. So a lot of our audience would be uh, nutritionists, dieticians, fitness professionals, medical professionals, and then athletes who are trying to use the most science-based or evidence-based practices. And so trying to distill what is coming out in the research into what that means for for uh, us pragmatically in the real world. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the goal. So uh, my own background was an undergraduate degree in biology and physics. And I went on to later do a master's degree in nutritional sciences from University College Cork and have been uh, running Sigma Nutrition since late 2013. Uh, and yeah trying to put out good information in that time so that's this was the overview of of uh, what I typically do
1: yeah I think uh, you have been doing a great job and what actually inspired you to start a podcast
0: so when I was starting the uh, stigma nutrition originally was obviously we had a, a coaching and a consultancy side the things and just as a way of putting out some content that I, thought people would find useful but also as a way of people getting to know me I started writing some articles doing some videos and at that time podcasts weren't that popular but I personally listened to a few podcasts I really enjoyed and I thought that might be a useful uh, medium to discuss some nutrition topics so said I'd start one see how it went and pretty soon afterwards found that that was more suited to my skill set and what I like doing compared to maybe writing articles mm-hmm. uh, regularly or being able to do lots of video regularly. So I kind of just more focused on the podcast, and that's the thing that took off uh, in comparison to the others f- for me. And yeah, so it just over time continued to grow in popularity, thankfully, and so stayed doing it. But yeah, it was, it was just a way of putting out information and I. I I personally like listening to podcasts, so I said I'd, I'd give that a go, and that's how it all came about.
1: And I believe that you also received some awards for your podcast.
0: So yeah, we've well, been uh, lucky in terms of that. People have found it quite useful, and um, come on. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's 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 nice there, but so as long as it keeps going that way, it's all good.
1: Yeah. So, let's speak about science uh, so because I find it that many people are still like uh, quite confused about the basics. and when it comes to like energy systems and you know uh, everybody now uh, puts information out of context on the internet that's that's what I find to be quite uh, uh, quite often. And then people just cite it, refer to it and it's like really out of context so in some very specific uh, settings, maybe laboratory settings. What we are interested in the end as athletes and practitioners is to see what really happens uh, outside, right? For example, there there was like this race walker study and fed adaptation, so uh, which showed us that, for example, high-fat diets are not as applicable in the real context as it might look uh, on the paper. So, understanding energy systems, uh, I think, is one of those basic things that will help people to understand what, how they should fuel, how they should train, and uh, for basically some mixed sports like uh, soccer or OCR specifically, or even... Martial arts, where you have bouts of uh, high intensity, and but you need to support it with a good aerobic base as well. Right. So, uh, yeah, we can. Uh, I would like you to explain it maybe to our the audience, like uh, how to think about it. Uh, what? Yeah. Go on.
0: Yeah, sure. So um, the way we typically try and explain it to our athletes is that when we're trying to think, well, what are good nutrition practices for an athlete? As you mentioned, probably the first thing is to look at, well, what is the nature of the sport and what typical energy systems are used in both competition and training? And then, therefore, we can fuel appropriately for that. So one of the main examples being, if we have a sport which relies heavily on uh, glucose or carbohydrate oxidation or glycolysis, These are are ones that people will typically think of as, quite say, anaerobic sports, um, where they work at high intensity for considerable periods of time. So field sports like soccer are a good example of this. Also, we would work with quite a lot of uh, mixed martial artists, boxers and other combat sport athletes. For sports like this, they have a high requirement on carbohydrate oxidation to produce ATP. So, in other words, to be able to produce energy, uh, because if we rely solely on fat oxidation or just burning fat to create energy, which is what would happen if so we didn't have any carbohydrates available, then there's only so fast that we can generate energy at, at that rate, and so it is able to it will be able to limit performance for something that is quite what we call glycolytically demanding. So that requires that high amount of glucose use. So again, high intensity sports, like some of those that we just mentioned, would uh, necessitate the use of some carbohydrate either that we've taken in in the diet leading up to the event or carbohydrate that is stored in the muscle and liver in the form of glycogen. And so by breaking those down and burning up that carbohydrate we can generate energy at a faster rate than if we were only relying on burning fat, for example. And so this kind of gets us into the energy systems like you mentioned, where we have uh, with something related to aerobic metabolism. So in other words, that requires oxygen. We can metabolize or oxidize or burn fat in this way, but we need the presence of oxygen around. So in an anaerobic environment where we don't have oxygen available, we Aren't able to be able to oxidize fat in that same way. However, with glucose, we can use it either through aerobic metabolism or anaerobic metabolism. And so, in those cases where oxygen is going to become limited, i.e., those sports with that high intensity output that we mentioned, so things like uh, uh, most sports uh, that we typically in a fuel like team sports and combat sports would fall in that category, then we're going to Need to make sure there's an adequate amount of carbohydrate available either through something we're ingesting during that event or that has been stored in the muscle and liver and so just understanding some of that physiology allows us to uh, come to some more practical conclusions about what types of activities and what types of people would be suited for let's say a very low carbohydrate diet versus that would be unsuitable for and so in the vast majority of athletes, we could probably see that a, a very low carbohydrate or a ketogenic diet used chronically or all the time would probably lead to suboptimal performance compared to one that gives greater uh, carbohydrate availability uh, just because of the energy systems used and the nature of those sports.
1: Right. And w- what about, for example, um, Uh, using the strategies like maybe faster training or uh, carbohydrate periodization to uh, basically or change fuel or substrate uh, in order to to promote like maybe more aerobic training Uh, so this specifically for endurance sports
0: right so in whilst carbohydrates can lead to best performance in many of these sports like you said there can be some benefits to having uh to to the adaptations that occur when an athlete trains low carbohydrate availability so if that's either through use of a low carbohydrate diet or their glycogen levels are low if they do certain training sessions or recovery windows with that low carbohydrate availability, there are certain adaptations at the level of the muscle that occur that don't occur if they were to have carbohydrate feedings. So for example, if the athlete does a training session uh, with low glycogen availability, so lowered stores of carbohydrate, and then doesn't consume carbohydrate afterwards, Some of the adaptations after that training would include increased uh, production of mitochondria, which are important for um, aerobic metabolism. And we would also have different changes in in certain gene expression at the muscle as well that could potentially in the long term be beneficial for performance. So we have this kind of uh, balancing act of there are some benefits to using carbohydrate restriction, but we also know for best performance, we want to have plenty of carbohydrate around in most cases. So that gives rise to this idea of carbohydrate periodization where we can potentially do certain training sessions or certain uh, recovery windows across a training week, for example, with less carbohydrate around and then just have them fueled appropriately with plenty of carbohydrate for either training sessions or events that require it. And so it's really thinking about when do we need maximal performance and when do we have, let's say, easier training sessions where performance doesn't matter as much. So now we can maybe try and get some of these beneficial adaptations at the level of the muscle, restricting carbohydrate. So that's that's kind of on one side. And then the second thing you asked about was things like fasted training. So fasted training is one method of potentially doing this, of not using any fueling and therefore maybe going into a session with lower carbohydrate availability. But it's also a way that people think of, well, if, if I use fasted training, does that mean I'm gonna burn more fat in that session? And this is where some of the, those misconceptions around fat burning and fat oxidation and carbohydrate oxidation come in. And that if you do a fasted right. training session, sure, you can burn more fat in the words fat oxidation goes up during the that training session but over the quite course of 24 hours it probably doesn't do anything it probably is the same net impact if you just have uh, say that the meal that you skipped before that training if you have that later in the day over 24 hours your um, fat and carb oxidation is probably going to be the same and then beyond that for actually changing body composition. It's not only fat oxidation that matters, but it's also carbohydrate oxidation. Right. Um, But there are just just a few things related to those ideas that some athletes can benefit through doing a few sessions with uh, reduced carbohydrate availability, but probably for ones where they want to perform their best, you probably don't want to have low carbohydrate availability.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, and that actually reminds me of uh, when I started training and I got... uh, I had like no idea about all these things back then and I would train like... uh, I would do like intermittent fasting 16 to 8, so 16 hour fasted, 8 hours uh, feeding window. Before I would feed myself, so before that feeding window started, I would do like training, whether it would be like running, high intensity intervals, you know, whatever. And I would do that chronically. And I see that many people also do that, do the same, I would call it mistake now. So, like you mentioned, uh, there are certain sessions when you want to, or when you could use uh, lower carbohydrate availability, which doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be fasted, uh, and um, to use for some physiological adaptations but you don't maybe want to use it chronically
0: right and it's probably important to note that this is still uh not completely ironed out in the research for uh-huh. many different types of sports and again it's still quite a i would i would say a theoretical paradigm with some studies looked at different forms of carbohydrate periodization um, and what we would refer to as train low or, or recover low strategies, and you see a kind of mix of impacts of probably um, the majority showing a kind of neutral impact, so not really that much more positive than a higher carb intake chronically. Uh, others that show slight benefits for performance, um, and none that show really any detriment. So it's still we're still trying to work out what is the exact magnitude of the impact, mm-hmm. and then. The problem is uh, if we're saying it may benefit performance because it causes these adaptations like increased mitochondrial biogenesis or uh, change in gene expression, they may take a very long time for actual real-world performance to show up. And so it might not be able to be captured in a study. So it's still at the moment uh, the magnitude of the impact and if it is indeed superior to just chronically high carbohydrate feeding for certain athletes is still to be determined. And so uh, to kind of err on the side of caution, if this seemed like something that was difficult for an athlete to implement, then you would probably say, well, we're, we're, we know we can get clear benefit to having um, a relatively high carbohydrate intake for these types of athletes just across the board. So we can go with that. Um, Rather than what, well, like I said, we still need to kind of work out to what extent a carbohydrate periodization framework would have on performance over something that just has a, a across the board generally high-ish carbohydrate intake. And of course, when I say high carbohydrate, that is a very individual thing for both the sport and also for the athlete. So what? High carbohydrate for one athlete is will be different than what high carbohydrate is for another athlete, and that becomes why some of this becomes a bit uh, difficult to give broad recommendations.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, that sounds sensible, and this this was actually the question that I was thinking about, like as I started to understand it a little, little bit more uh, from the perspective that uh, we see that maybe maybe it is uh, like positive. Um, what is the magnitude of this positive effect you know like uh, because many amateur athletes and people who uh, can benefit from just improving their basic training basic nutrition uh, we like to look at all these like specific stuff carbohydrate cycling and uh, these kind of things that don't have such a huge impact I would say
0: Right. And I, I think in general, a lot of athletes might intuitively do some form of carbohydrate periodization. And why mm-hmm. not? it may not be directly the same protocols we'd advise for if they really wanted to use, say, a train low or a recover low strategy. A lot of athletes typically will end up consuming less carbohydrates on rest days and more carbohydrates on a day that do a lot of high-intensity, uh, high-volume training. And so there's probably some degree of periodization in their carbohydrate intake anyway. And, and what this kind of uh, carb periodization framework that is being talked about now in sports nutrition more looks at is just thinking about from a meal to the meal basis, mm-hmm. what, what, how much carbohydrate are we consuming, and what is the relevance of that to your next training session, for example, or recovery from the same session you've just done. And then uh, with the the low carbohydrate uh, or the carbohydrate restriction with training and meals, that would be, again, still a small amount across the week for most athletes. It might be a couple of times, a couple of meals, uh, or a couple of days across that week, as opposed to um, using it all the time,
1: um, so yeah. All right. I think it, uh, what you mentioned also goes hand in hand with like just energy uh cycling well we would say that some days we eat more, some days we eat less unless we really try to track it and hit some specific number every day. So this this could do also with carbohydrates. And now let's took an let's take an athlete for an example that is like training for these uh sports like soccer or well more specifically for OCR who needs to have a good endurance, which is the basis, but also needs to exert a lot of, let's say, anaerobic power, for maybe for the strong finish or maybe for uh, lifting, you know, like heavy weights for a shorter period of time. So how would we, uh, what, what is the like, best advice from the nutritional perspective you could give to such an athlete? So
0: I think probably a a few things again. If we're thinking about what is the fuel requirements for the sessions across the week, is probably if you map out what your training looks like over any given week, trying to pinpoint what what training sessions. Yeah,
1: yeah, sorry to interrupt you. Or yes, some days it will be like, uh, let's say endurance session and strength training in the same day the next day it would be more like uh, high intensity oriented so this would be like crossfit maybe kind of workout and intervals running
0: so when you look at those then you can say okay there's probably going to be different fuel requirements for those different types of training sessions some training days are going to be more difficult than others some will be either lighter training days or kind of recovery rest days Um, some might be like you say some uh, slow long endurance type stuff others will be more like CrossFit-like in nature. And so those will probably have different demands on them. So the first thing is to look at what your training is across the week. Pinpoint what are the most important training sessions, what ones are the most high intensity, what ones does performance matter the most in. And before those, they're gonna be the ones that you're gonna try and make sure you go into with high carbohydrate availability. Similarly then, if you have a a rest day or a recovery day, then you may not need to fuel in the same way. So you can have reduced overall energy, reduced carbohydrate for those if you wish. Probably what will stay most consistent is protein intake. So probably keeping a relatively high protein intake each day and that distributed across probably at least three to four high protein meals across the day is probably gonna benefit muscle recovery, um, muscle repair. And then the rest, the energy and carbohydrate will depend on the athlete's overall training schedule. Um, So just kind of thinking about what are those priority sessions and do I have enough energy and carbohydrate consumed uh, in the day or hours leading up to that session for me to optimally uh, perform, and then what you do after that training session will depend on well when is your following training session? How far away is it? Um, is it that evening? Is it not for another two days? Because those would necessitate that you fuel in a different way. If you have another training session in six hours' time, you will be more time pressed to get more calories and carbohydrates back in before that next session. Than if you're not training for another two days, now you have a lot of time. So. The immediate post-workout meal isn't as much of a concern of what you put in there. So all these factors will dictate what kind of each meal looks like. But some general rules of thumb would be to make sure you're eating enough calories overall to support the amount of work volume you're doing. Have a high protein intake distributed across the day. And then have a carbohydrate intake that allows you to have sufficient carbohydrate availability for... The sessions where you want to perform your best
1: yeah and i i'm sure that you also come across athletes also in your practice that maybe are training like uh, six to even 14 times a week and uh, yeah the, their major problem can be just overall energy intake to basically improve performance or not to lose uh, you know fat mass or body weight in that that sense. So what are some of the good approaches to uh, make sure that uh, the athlete is recovering well and getting enough, enough food, enough fuel?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think keeping both objective and subjective measures can help to make sure the athlete is swimming enough. So not only tracking things like body weight uh, which is an objective measure that if we see that it is dramatically dropping over time and that's not the goal, then the athlete is certainly under-fueling. But they can also be under-fueling even without a decrease in body weight. So if they're noticing um, that they're constantly fatigued, that their performance is going down over time despite training, and particularly if they're training more and they, they should be improving, if performance starts to dip, if they're reporting that like fatigue is very high, if they're getting more um, ill or they're getting colds or flus regularly. um, All these different things that we can kind of track to piece together, okay, are you actually consuming enough? And if we can add back in more calories and keep adding those um, and performance and recovery goes up and their body weight still stays where it's at, then that's the best place to be. Ideally eating as many calories as they can to support that training without them, let's say, gaining weight, unless that was a goal of theirs.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think from certain perspective, there is also like a mental block or it's a mental problem because uh, some athletes don't want to uh, gain body weight. And so they are afraid to eat more, despite their... Performance is not improving from session to session or even decreasing like you mentioned. So I think this is also something to think about Uh, So, uh, do you have any specific advice for addressing these things? Uh, Do you have any specific advice for uh, maybe athletes who are like struggling to Uh, to increase their performance so basically they are in this relative energy deficient state and uh, they are not improving but maybe they they have a suspicion that it's their mental block that they are afraid of eating eating more uh, because they don't want to get uh, body fat
0: right yeah so first is if this is specifically an athlete and they have a competitive goal, then I think tapping into that is important. So realizing uh, what is your main priority right now, and if it is to be the, the best you can at this given sport and you're going to be competitive, then realizing that one of the ways to do that may be for you to be consuming more food and that you're undermining your ability to be as good at your sport as you can because you're chronically under-eating. The second one would be to try and understand well, where is this fear coming from and oftentimes this can be quite complex and this for some people could be rooted deep into things like eating disorders um, body image issues and so on and if that's the case probably working with a practitioner that can help them with that and someone with some Um, experience of working with either eating disorders or whether that's a uh, dietitian with a special expertise in the area or psychologist or therapist can be particularly useful. Even beyond that, if someone doesn't have an eating disorder right now, but are uh, seem to be at risk for developing that because of, let's say certain uh, body image issues or this fear of putting on body fat with any increasing intake, then again trying to question where does that come from and what is causing those things. Because if again, the athlete we can probably do this in a relatively stepwise manner, that if you start eating, let's say, an extra few hundred calories a day and you do that for a week or two to see how you respond, you're not gonna all of a sudden gain a ton of body weight. In fact, for someone who massively overeats on a given day, they're probably not really gonna add much, if any, body fat from that kind of one day of overeating. So a slight increase in calories for a week or two isn't going to cause any noticeable increase in body fat. And for some people, for athletes who are under eating, probably wouldn't increase their body fat at all. And the problem is that they're just under fueling for the amount of exercise they're doing. So they could actually eat more food and probably end up expending more energy and be able to get better quality workouts. And so they can probably maintain their current body composition on a higher amount of calories. For others, we can stay increasing their food intake, and even if there is a slight increase in body weight and they gain some body fat, a lot of the time that might not even be a bad thing, and that some athletes would benefit from having those extra uh, calories around. They may even be at a healthier body composition at that point. If an athlete is restricting their diet so much to keep their uh, body fat levels down, that may not be a their naturally best range of body fat to be in for them as an individual to perform at their sport. And so some slight gain in body fat may be actually of benefit. And then even beyond that, if they went through a period of time of gaining body fat and it does go up considerably because we, we keep them in a surplus for a long period of time, bringing that body fat back down at a certain point is actually pretty easy. Once the athlete is in a good place with how much they're eating and they're eating plenty of food, performing well, now a very slight and modest calorie deficit for a short period of time can allow them to lose some of that body fat they've gained but and also do it relatively quickly. So most of the concerns athletes have around gaining some body fat are pretty um, unfounded, and, and we can kind of dismiss most of them by just talking through them with some logic right. and really kind of t- tapping into why they, they fear that gain of body fat in the first place.
1: Yeah, I think you hit the nail the head that's like uh, this fear comes from misunderstanding or uh, how our body behaves from anecdotally speaking from my own experience is like uh, for example like you mentioned if you eat for example one day a lot uh, you will not get that that much body fat right from that overeating let's let's say binge session for example I ate like two pounds of peanut butter I mean it's a lot of calories, a lot of fat, but, I mean, it just disappeared and... It disappeared. <laughs> yeah, so this is like anecdotal evidence, right? Uh, but you also mentioned a uh, very important topic, which is nowadays, and this disordered eating, and as I was listening actually yesterday or the day before, the day before, Uh, you had one of your recent podcast episodes about eating disorders or disordered eating. So, yeah, listeners should definitely listen to that. But just to wrap it up very shortly, I think what is important to say is that, uh, as I understood it, what can be an eating disorder for one person doesn't need to be an eating disorder pattern for a different person.
0: Right. So I think it's that certain behaviors, um, and this kind of ties into your last question, can uh, whether they are problematic or not depends on the context and why someone is doing that. So for example, if someone um, is under eating because let's say they are um, an athlete, all is going well and they have a, fight coming up or a competition where they have to do a weigh-in so in, in, in weight class-based sports and they just need to diet for a few weeks to make sure their weight comes in under that category and then they can return to kind of normal eating afterwards then them undereating isn't the same problem as someone else having the same behavior of under eating but mm-hmm. doing it out of a place of fear or that they Uh, hate their body or they feel they need to lose weight in order to have self-worth and all these other types of things the behavior i.e. dieting is the same in both people but the reason and the context around it is different and that's what really determines if something is uh, a disordered eating pattern or not and so one of the big things as well um, and again this is kind of outside my, my own area of expertise but with looking at disordered eating and eating disorders it's not that it's a binary you have an eating disorder or you don't it's probably there's this long continuum or spectrum of uh, one end um, severe symptoms of an outright eating disorder all the way to very mild disordered eating behaviors and most of us in different consequence uh, in different context may exhibit things that could be seen as disordered eating in some way um, so for example if we um, change our what we would normally want to consume or our type of eating when we're in public because we don't want someone to see us eating a certain way, really, again, that's maybe viewed as not a good thing in some contexts. In others, it might be fine, but in, uh, in some cases, it might not be a good thing. So it becomes a big issue. And when we're talking about athletes, um, we know that athletes, and specifically athletes in weight class-based uh, sports, um, and then also sports that, that uh, benefit from having a low body weight, like endurance sports, like gymnastics, athletes in those areas have a higher risk of developing an eating disorder than, let's say, the, the person in the general population. And so it's something right. to be keep, keep an eye of because it might start out for athletic reasons of I'm trying to keep my uh, body weight down to be competitive in this certain sport. But over time, these can become truly disordered eating patterns. So just something to kind of be aware of. And if an athlete is experiencing some of these to be able to talk to uh, someone to be able to get some help with them.
1: Yeah, definitely. And everybody who is listening right now should also listen to your other podcast podcast. Or to this episode to go to where you go deeper with your guests on that, so I will make sure to have it linked in the show notes, and besides that, we also started speaking more about uh let's say health now I would say from the psychological or physiological perspective, so let's speak about this circadian rhythms and how it affects our health or even performance because this is something which has been uh or which is pretty new in the research as i understand it and it's very exciting
0: yeah so um when we talk about circadian eating that was a a kind of just a made-up term I used for a recent lecture that I talked about, which is really talking about this idea of chrononutrition, which is the term we'll see in the research. It's basically how meal timing and how we eat may impact our health via impacting our circadian rhythms. And so circadian rhythms, for maybe those that have not come across them, are... Uh, rhythms of different biological processes that occur with around a 24 hour period and repeat over time and we have many of these within uh, the body so for example uh, melatonin is a hormone that will exhibit a certain rhythm that changes across the day and repeats it each day same thing with uh, your rhythm of cortisol with your rhythm of core body temperature and many many other things and so they exhibit this rhythm um, across the the day and is around 24 hours and we can fine tune it to a more precise 24 hours to match up with our uh, day our 24-hour day using cues in our environment like light temperature um, and so on and now we're starting Mm -hmm. to see that some of these circadian rhythms can be set or entrained by feeding so when we consume nutrients and so we have a main circadian clock that's located in the brain this is called our master clock but we also have these circadian clocks that are located in tissues all around the body these are called peripheral clocks they're in every kind of tissue like fat tissue muscle tissue uh, lung tissue heart tissue intestinal tissue and so on and as i said we're starting to see now that feeding can entrain or set these circadian rhythms uh, in these different tissues, so for example, in the pancreas, we know that insulin secretion has a circadian rhythm to it. Mm-hmm. So um, feeding can entrain some of uh, of these. Similarly, we know in like uh, muscle tissue, insulin sensitivity across the day is highest in the morning, is lower in the evening. This follows the circadian uh, pattern. And so, if feeding can influence these circadian rhythms, then when we eat and how we distribute our calories across the day could theoretically uh, uh, cause us to be in either circadian alignment or circadian misalignment. So circadian alignment being that we have an alignment between that kind of central circadian clock and those peripheral clocks, um, or we can think of it as an alignment between these endogenous circadian rhythms and our, our behaviors that influence those. So like when we sleep and when we wake, our exposure to light and dark, our exposure to feeding and fasting. And then circadian misalignment would be when those cycles get out of sync. So when we have a mismatch between, say those central clock and the peripheral clocks, or when our behaviors are at different times to what endogenously our circadian rhythms should be. So for example, circadian alignment, uh, a good example here would be people who do shift work and they're now awake during darkness, So their active time and their rest time is now out of sync with exposure to light and dark when it should naturally occur. And so they are now awake and being active and eating during the biological night, and then they are sleeping during the biological day, which is a mismatch from what we would want. Mm -hmm. So um, with eating, then we're starting to see different pieces of research that have opened up some interesting questions. We still have a lot to answer, but it seems to suggest a couple of things. One, that it's probably not a good idea to eat at biological night. So this would be very late at night and particularly into the night. So how you metabolize a meal, let's say, during the middle of the night at 3 a.m., like a shift worker might have to do, will be very different for that exact same meal if you were to eat it in the middle of the day. Mm-hmm. We all, so we see eating at biological night is probably not so good for a metabolic health standpoint. Uh, we also see, because there's differences in uh, insulin sensitivity across the day, having a large amount of carbohydrates uh, late in the evening or uh, late at night would cause a different postprandial glucose response, so how high and how sustained the glucose response to a meal is, so your blood sugar going up and staying up. So that same meal will be different if it's late in the day versus earlier in the day based on this kind of circadian rhythm to insulin sensitivity.
1: Right, so uh, let me interrupt you there. So as far as I know, the the insulin sensitivity is about like, I'm not sure about the numbers, but I think it's about 19% or 20% better in the morning, the morning hours than in the evening.
0: Yeah, so depending on what uh, kind of studies you look at and from individual to individual, but some would suggest that about an average, you could see something in that range um, in, in difference in morning and evening,
1: yeah. Yeah, so definitely. And uh, I know that uh, I've been speaking with some people and um, that's also what I thought, like uh, my immediate question was like, okay, so how do I apply it into my uh, into my life, into my practice? And is it even worth like considering, and we are back at carbohydrate recycling. Uh, so um, I think or what I came to the conclusion is that uh, even when we are speaking about this chrononutrition then uh, what drives the insulin sensitivity the most is actually the physical uh, exercise physical activity from that perspective like uh in context of muscles being sensitive to insulin. So even if you are working out late at night or later at night, so let's say 9, 10 p.m., uh, your insulin sensitivity will still be much higher compared to a sedentary person at that time. So,
0: right. Yeah, and this is, uh, again, where, and as with any nutrition, the kind of context uh, matters of who we're talking about so if we're looking at athletes who are relatively lean are very active then Overall, they are going to be much more insulin sensitive and they also have the secondary benefit of if you do some training particularly if, say that that's in the evening then after that even if your say muscle cell is slightly less insulin sensitive than earlier in the day you can still get glucose disposal. So moving glucose from the bloodstream into a cell without the action of insulin being required. This happens in response to muscle contraction. You get the movement of these glucose transporters. So consuming carbohydrates, even in the evening or at night, if that's after training versus if you've just been sitting down all day, would be a very different context. Similarly, Athletes are going to be more insulin sensitive than others. So we have to kind of weigh up, again, the context of who we're talking about and also consider, again, what is the goals of that person? So how much of a difference this makes for the health of an athlete versus someone just uh, in the general population will be kind of a couple of different things. Um, So they they would all have to be factored into what practically we might do with, with some of this information.
1: Yeah, definitely. So, basically, what happens if we are in this circadian misalignment, like from the perspective of health? Or what are the health effects?
0: Of being in circadian misalignment? Right. So, with circadian misalignment, we pretty much see that most uh, systems of the body probably get screwed in some way, or at least a, a high percentage. Similar in the way that we see when people are chronically sleep restricted you see everything seems to get messed up so circadian misalignment just a few examples that might be relevant one is that i mentioned earlier things like cortisol has a particular rhythm um, where it's actually high or early in the morning we see that in circadian misalignment you would see the cortisol rhythm gets completely flipped around so it's it's high at the times that it should be low and it's low at the times it should be high you see a decrease in the hormone leptin Circadian misalignment, and we know that when leptin decreases, that's essentially a signal to the body that there's low energy availability, so it will get uh, you to seek out more food and to actually move around a bit less in response to lower leptin levels. Uh, we see worse uh, glycemic responses to meals in circadian misalignment, so when you have a meal that contains some carbohydrate, your blood sugar will have a greater glucose excursion in the couple of hours after consuming that meal. So glucose goes up higher, stays up higher for longer. And the same thing happens with insulin. So you basically have a worse glycemic response to your meals with circadian uh, misalignment here as well. Um, You see other things that potentially for changes in body composition, particularly for someone in the general population, it seems to potentially cause a change in energy expenditure across the day. Uh, that can happen and there can also relate to other things like uh, gastric emptying so the rate of gastric emptying of uh, would determine like how fast someone digests a meal for example so again changes the me- uh, how they're metabolizing meals so all these things happen when we have this circadian uh, misalignment we can also get uh, symptoms that are similar to Uh, or or that actually would be the same, like one form of causing circadian misalignment would be jet lag, for example. So you travel across time zones that causes this shift or the circadian circadian phase shift. Of the um, symptoms uh, associated with jet lag that you can get. We also have things now like social jet lag, which is this idea of if you're, The typical, let's say, person who works uh, nine to five, Monday to Friday, at the weekends, we typically see people stay in bed later in the the morning and they go to bed later at night. So if the shift in their sleep times, then when the following Monday rolls around, they now get back to getting up early. And uh, that, again, is the same as this kind of shift we would see across time zones. So these are forms of causing some circadian misalignment. Uh, and so, some of those kind of jet lag-like symptoms could be the result of b- becoming circadian misaligned.
1: Right. So, um, what can a general person who wants to be healthy, wants to be fit, and just lead a happy and good life take from that? What, what is the take-home message for them?
0: So, first, I would say, don't forget the more the the, the main fundamental principles around nutrition right so still getting overall good quality of food making sure you're consuming an amount of food that is adequate for what your goal is uh making sure let's say that you're eating an adequate amount of protein things like that all those typical principles we can talk about elsewhere those things if trying to change your meal timing undermines those in any way then don't worry too much about it. The, the big important rocks, the things to get in control, and if it becomes too difficult by trying to change some of this kind of meal timing around, then, then don't worry. It's not worth uh, undermining those big important things. With that said, if you can implement it, there's probably a, a small number of things I think might be worth at least trying that theoretically makes some sense. So, one is like I said, trying not to eat at biological night, and let's say, for most people, we can think of this as, let's stay within two hours of going to sleep. Um, and certainly the later that is, probably stay away from meals, and particularly big meals. So having something light, let's say if it's just a high-protein snack, it's probably not going to be as problematic as a large meal uh, with lots of calories, carbohydrates, fats, mm-hmm. and so on. So avoid eating at biological night. Second, probably, if possible, try and uh biased more of your calories to earlier in the day so it doesn't have to be super early but ideally it'd probably be a bit better not to have let's say very little food throughout the day and then just a huge meal let's say late in the evening right so instead can we get more of your overall daily calories up earlier in the day is probably a a decent idea
1: yeah i heard sorry to interrupt you i heard that uh regarding this getting majority of calories in the first half of the day so that would be like by 2 p.m as a general recommendation
0: so it's hard to know what the exact cutoff will be and it'll probably differ from person to person and I, i wouldn't get people to worry too much about it i would think like where is their normal meals but if they're typically just having a lot of their calories very late in the day now just pushing more of them to some point earlier just to some earlier meals would probably be a step in the right direction um so that'd be one way to go and then finally one that might be worth trialing for again just the average person trying to be healthy might be some degree of time restriction on their feeding window Uh so eating all their meals within a certain window of time now we don't know exactly what the the best t- time is, or if one exists. Uh, a lot of studies have looked at, for example, at an eight hour feeding window, um, where you then, with the other 16 hours of the day, you're not eating. Um, it, could, it might be that, it might be 10 hours, it could be 12 hours, but it, probably what would be a good idea is to have some window of time. Because we know that on average, a lot of people will eat for 15 plus hours of the day. So they'll consume something pretty soon after getting up and will stay vegan, ingesting calories until it's almost bedtime. And so this can be 15, 16 hours of the day that they're eating. Shortening that feeding window into something shorter, let's say if you could start by start with a 12-hour feeding window and see how you find that. So if your first meal is at 8 a.m., your final meal being at 8 p.m. and then from there if you find maybe you find the 10 hour feeding window is uh, even better for you and you feel better with that so you have your first meal at let's say 8 and then your final meal at 6 or whatever 10 um, hour window works for that person so having some restricted feeding window might be useful to at least try and see how they respond um, like I say having Probably a bit more energy skewed to earlier in the day, not eating within two hours before bed, and I think those few things would be a good start point uh, before delving more into some stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds sensible. And I actually have one last question. That is from Tobias, and that is from a coach, coach's perspective. And uh, like, how how do you work with people uh, who are afraid, either like? of fat so they have like high carb diet or from the exact opposite point they are afraid of like carbohydrates so they they want to follow like high fat diet and uh, he wants to explain to them you know neither of neither of them is like the best choice probably Mm.
0: well first if they have one particular type of dietary strategy that they want to use then most of the time i think we can kind of start off with that and not force them to eat a different way of like okay we can set up something like this as long as the food sources are helpful we can start off this way and then from there it's kind of just some education over time of um if they have some misconceptions about it maybe asking where did they get those ideas from what they think is going to happen if they consume carbohydrate or fat depending on what they're afraid of really understanding what those fears are and what they would have got them from and then part of it would be explaining rationale why i don't think some of those concerns are well founded and the second would be to use some sort of trial period of slightly increasing their carbohydrate intake for a certain week and seeing how they feel and particularly if their intake has been very low and let's say they're an athlete. Now they introduce some more and after that week, they kind of say, Oh look, I I didn't suddenly gain a load of weight and actually feel better in my performance. Now they're kind of bought into that. Similarly, you can do the same as someone who who is afraid to consume any fats. You can kind of talk through the logic of uh, what they're suggesting, maybe point out some um, rationale for why that might not be the case. And then also see if they're open to maybe trialing, uh, something for a period of time where we kind of increased their fat intake but kind of working with the client to make those decisions as opposed to saying um, don't be an idiot you must do it this way <laughs> uh, I think it's unlikely to be to lead to actual real behavior change so right. I'd say coming at it from a place of understanding trying to work with where they're currently at and then over time just seeing if they're receptive to uh, talking through some of those ideas and being able to present them ideas why what they think might not necessarily be true
1: yeah and sometimes they even figure it it by themselves over time
0: right exactly yeah. and that the, the coaching process should be you working together to try and achieve their goal not that you are just dictating yeah. go and do this and that's what they must do
1: okay so danny thank you very much for your time i really appreciate it and uh, yeah of uh, So where can people find you? What's coming up next for you? Because you have also some events scheduled. So where can people hear you? Maybe also in person or meet you?
0: Sure. So um, everything is over at sigmanutrition.com. So they should be able to find where to contact me more about uh, the company, uh, the different things we've got going on. If they like listening to podcasts, then just search for Sigma Nutrition Radio On any podcast app and then uh i'm should be able to be found on social media so instagram just danny lennon underscore sigma find me on twitter just nutrition danny then uh easy just pop my name into facebook as well um so any of those places i'm happy to take questions but everything else is kind of listed up on sigmanutrition.com
1: okay perfect danny thank you very much once again you have a great day
0: yes same to you man thank you for having me
1: I hope that you enjoyed this episode and before you leave, it would be awesome if you could leave rating and a review on the platform or an application that you use for listening. It will help me greatly to bring new guests and discuss topics you are interested in. By the way, check the show notes for important links, maybe that we discussed during the episode and all the other, and subscribe to Health Energy Performance Newsletter, where I share at least one type nutrition, training and mindset that will help you reach your health and fitness goals easily. I would also like to invite you to have a strategy call with me. During this 30 minutes call, we will first dive into your goals, I will get to know you, you, your lifestyle and you will get a clear direction and know exactly what to do next to progress your training and maybe improve your eating habits. I started this as a personal challenge for my 30th birthday and I fell in love with it. I really loved connecting with people and helping them solve their issues and problems during these strategic calls, so naturally I continue doing so. Mind you, this is not a sales call, but you must be ready to invest your energy and time to get the benefit. So check the show notes, sign up for the call, and I will be looking forward to hear from you.